As we approach the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, what better way to commemorate this momentous period than to talk about Paul's epistle to the Romans? The Apostle Paul explains to the diverse metropolitan recipients of the epistle that we are all great sinners who are in great need of so great a salvation. Who shall we turn to for assistance? Calvin? Luther? The Puritans? Murray? Hodge? Hendrickson? Moo? Schreiner? How about Gordon H. Clark? Stay tuned and gird your loins as we scratch the surface on Romans According to Gordon H. Clark. All Christians are urban Christians. Whether you live in Graceville, Florida, or Chicago, Illinois, the believer is on a pilgrim's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. As we endeavor to live unto God in this world, our faith looks for the city which is to come, whose architect and builder is the living God. You are not alone on your journey. As you travel the narrow way, know that a great cloud of witnesses went before you. Many travel alongside you, and while the Lord tarries, many will follow the same path after you. But until the heavenly city is brought to us, or we to it, one such pilgrim is your fellow traveler. He is Urban Puritano. Many moons ago, there was a young seminarian whippersnapper who used an NASB Master Study Bible for all his classes. This Bible contained very helpful book introductions with outlines of each book of the Bible, written by various 20th century evangelical stalwarts. Among them was a certain Gordon H. Clark, who wrote the brief introduction and outline to the Book of Romans. Unbeknownst to the young seminarian whippersnapper, he was benefiting, albeit ever so slightly, from someone whom Carl F. H. Henry said was, quote, one of the profoundest evangelical Protestant philosophers of the 20th century, close quote. Many current young seminarian whippersnappers may not even know who Carl F. H. Henry is. That's a whole other story or episode. In any case, wouldn't it be great if Clark expanded on his ten-paragraph summary of Romans? As that young seminarian whippersnapper found out a few years later, Gordon H. Clark did indeed expand on that summary of Romans. I presume this expanded essay came first, and then it was subsequently reduced to about ten short paragraphs for use in various study Bible helps, like the NASB Master Study Bible. Interestingly, in recent years, on a trip to half-price books, I found a used Spanish Bible published by Editorial Vida that contained all the exact book introductions and outlines, including Clark's on Romans, translated into Spanish. Reformed resources on Romans range from commentaries, old and new, to devotionals, to sermon collections, to Bible studies, and to certain topics such as justification, union with Christ, or predestination. 
we are blessed to have an abundance of resources. Romans was on Gordon Clark's radar, it would seem, throughout his life and career. Not only did he write an entry for the Biblical Expositor, edited by Carl F. H. Henry in 1960, he also wrote the preface to a study manual on Romans by Baptist pastors David Steele and Curtis Thomas, published by Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing in 1963. That book is still available and has been translated into Spanish as well. It is my hope that pastors, teachers, and all believers would be stimulated to take up their Bibles, turn to Romans, and with the help of someone like Gordon H. Clark, make plans to lead, teach, and or preach these great, central, and foundational truths of the true Christian faith. Let's start with Clark's 1963 preface to Romans, an Interpretive Outline by Steele and Thomas. Clark wrote, and I quote, This second half of the 20th century is an age of depression, not financial depression, but spiritual depression. Ecclesiastically, there is widespread apostasy. The great bulk of religious literature published by, recommended by, or circulated in the major denominations undermines or overtly attacks the truthfulness of God's Word, the Bible. This is easily accomplished, for spot checks indicate that most church members have very little biblical knowledge to undermine and do not much care whether the Bible is true or not. Outside the visible church, and this comprises at least half of the population of the United States, there is not only towering indifference to divine truth, but there are also organized groups who try to eradicate all ideas of God from our national life. They aim to use the government to suppress Christianity. On the other end of the spectrum are the small denominations and independent congregations which adhere to the Bible as their standard. They are not completely illiterate in biblical matters, as the others are. But their level of knowledge, most unfortunately, does not equal that of the immediate followers of Luther, Calvin, and Knox, nor of the Puritans of the 17th century. Of course, there are exceptions to the general rule. Some small groups concentrate earnestly on Bible study, but by and large there is more dilute milk for the babes than the strong meat needed for Christian vigor. This is an age of religious depression and spiritual debility. For a first step to remedy this situation, apart from an intensive study of John's Gospel, there is nothing so profitable as a series of sermons or class discussions on Paul's epistle to the Romans. If any minister wants to strengthen his people, he can hardly do better than to give them a massive dose of Romans. Someone objects that Romans is too profound, too difficult, and horrors too theological. But theology is precisely what the world needs, because the world needs God. The object studied by theology is God, just as the object studied by botany is plant life. Now, a study of God 
will understandably involve difficulties. But Romans was not too difficult or too theological for the Holy Spirit to inspire Paul to send it to the Christians in Rome. These Christians were often of the lower classes of Roman society. Some were slaves. Perhaps some could neither read nor write. None had graduated from an American high school. But they could, and they did, study the letter Paul had sent them. In view of this, the modern American ought to discard his inferiority complex. Yes, there are difficulties. Some passages, such as Romans 5, 12-21, are very difficult. But for all of that, Paul organized his material so logically that any semi-intelligent high school graduate can easily carry the outline in his head. The 20th century Christian, therefore, has no excuse For Romans is God's message to all of us, and it is just what this debilitated age needs. Each verse is a concentrated vitamin pill designed to cure modernistic rickets. The present book has been put together with great care by its authors. No doubt there are mistakes in it. The authors do not claim to be inspired apostles. Nonetheless, with conscientious attention to detail, both of form and content, they have spared neither time nor typewriter in producing a manuscript suited to our needs. It is not a bare outline, such as mine, in the biblical expositor, nor is it the immortal 716-page commentary of Charles Hodge. It is neither too long nor too short, but is just what is needed for a series of sermons or for several months of lessons in a Bible class. There is one more point to be made about the difficulty of learning the message of Romans. A medieval story tells of a burden which gives strength to the man who lifts it, so that the heavier the burden is, the easier it is to carry it. God has imposed the burden of his word upon us. He did not send it to a hierarchy of professional priests who stand between us and himself. God addressed the Bible to the people, but with the burden the Lord also sends the Spirit of truth to lead us into all truth. As we read the inspired message, we can and we ought to seek illumination from the Holy Ghost. He was its original author, and He is willing to help us through its difficulties. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan His work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Close quote. Signed, Gordon H. Clark. Clark called his entry in the biblical expositor a, quote, bare outline. Close quote. He and I have a very different idea of what a bare outline involves. This prompts the question, what is the content of Clark's essay in the Biblical Expositor of 1960.
Soli Deo Gloria. Romans, according to Gordon H. Clark. And I quote, The epistle to the Romans, the longest, the most systematic, and the most profound of all the epistles, and perhaps the most important book in the Bible, was written by the Apostle Paul. He was in Corinth at the time. The careful composition of the letter suggests that after some tempestuous experience there, he had a period of leisure before he took relief money to the saints in Jerusalem. This puts the date early in A.D. 58. Unlike the other epistles, Romans was written to a church he had never visited. All the ingenuity of destructive criticism has never been able to impugn the authenticity of the epistle. Therefore, without further ado, we turn from the questions of criticism to a study of its message. Roman numeral 1. Introduction and Theme. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Because Paul had never visited Rome, although several of his friends and converts had gone there to live, he opened his letter with a longer salutation than ordinary. It would have been odd for a private person to address such an important congregation, and utterly out of place to impose upon them such a treatise on fundamental doctrine. Therefore, Paul begins by stressing his apostolic calling. Incidental allusions show the scope of Paul's mind and furnish a wealth of material for topical study. Although this article can spare no room for detours from the main subject, one paragraph may be used to give a few examples. The doctrine of election is hinted at in that Paul was called to be an apostle, and the Roman Christians were also called by Jesus Christ. These Christians were called to be saints. Paul never suggests that only some Christians officially canonized are saints. And as the epistle is addressed to all of them, Paul evidently expected them all to read it. This is the Protestant principle of an open Bible. Then, too, the unity of the Old Testament and the New Testament, to which the latter reference will be made, is asserted. The deity of Christ is emphasized. The occurrence of this idea here is significant because in A.D. 58, there were still many living who had seen Jesus. The deity of Christ, therefore, is not a legend that took centuries to develop, perhaps under Greek influence, but was commonly accepted from the very first. Again, when Paul calls himself the slave of Christ Jesus and worships God, he allows for no distinction between two acts of worship, the one, dulia, to be paid to deceased saints, and the other, latria, to God alone, much less a third form, hyperdulia, or superslavery to be paid to the Virgin Mary. After the salutation, Paul expresses thanks for the remarkable faith of the Romans. He assures them of his desire to visit them and to preach the gospel in Rome also, quote, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, close quote. And then he introduces the theme of the epistle, justification by faith. Here are two points to be especially noted. First, 
as was mentioned above, the message of the Old Testament is essentially the same as the message of the New Testament. Just as the promises which God made by the prophets are themselves the gospel, and as Jesus began at Moses to expound what all the Old Testament taught of him, so justification by faith is an Old Testament doctrine. Paul makes his theme from Habakkuk 2.4. Second, the fact that the first four books of the New Testament are called Gospels produces the impression that Romans is not the Gospel. A distinction is sometimes drawn between the Gospel to be preached at evangelistic services and something else, perhaps called doctrine or theology, that is dismissed as not so important. But here, verses 15 through 17, chapter 1, Paul emphatically identifies the doctrine of justification by faith with the gospel. The verse from Habakkuk confirms that the gospel is the power of God, because in it is revealed a righteousness that comes from God by faith. What this means is the burden of the epistle. Roman numeral 2, the need for the gospel, chapter 1, verses 18 through 320, subheading, condemnation of the Gentiles, chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The need of the gospel, that is, the need of justification by faith, is based on God's wrath against the sin of mankind. This sin may be divided into impiety and iniquity. Wrath, guilt, and liability to punishment are appropriate because men know the truth and yet suppress it. What is known of God has been made clear to them. The eternal attributes of omnipotence and deity, though invisible, are clearly seen in the created universe, rendering it inexcusable for a man not to worship God. The race, refusing to glorify and thank God, became stupid, so stupid as to fall to the level of idolatry. They worshipped birds, beasts, and even reptiles. Because of this impiety, God gave them over to iniquity and to vile passions. This abandoning of man to his lusts is not a passive permission, but is the active and effective wrath of verse 18. One terrible result was sexual perversion, which was so vicious that the Apostle Paul does not refer to men and women, as the translations have it, but to simply males and females. Since they thus reprobated God, God gave them up to a reprobate mind. All sorts of evils followed. Maliciousness, murder, deceit, backbiting, cruelty, and so forth. Yet though they wished to exclude all knowledge of God from their minds, they could not altogether succeed. They still knew the last judgment of God, namely, that people who practice such things are worthy of death. Nonetheless, they continued in their wicked way and entirely approved of those who did those things. Condemnation of the Jews, chapter 2, 
verses 1 through chapter 3, verse 8. The Jews were only too willing to admit that the Gentiles were as evil as Paul had said. But in the very act of judging the Gentiles, the Jews condemned themselves, for they were doing essentially the same thing, namely, breaking the law of God. Despising thus the riches of God's goodness, the Jews were treasuring up wrath for themselves, because God's judgment is based on strict justice. God rewards each man according to his works. To those who are patient in well-doing, God will give eternal life. To those who obey not the truth, he will give tribulation and anguish. And this applies to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles. God is no respecter of persons. The Gentiles sinned without the Mosaic law. They shall perish without it. The Jews sinned under the law. They shall be judged by it. For having or hearing the law does not justify. Only the doers of the law shall be justified. Parenthetically, in a sense the Gentiles too have the law of God. Not the Mosaic law, to be sure, but from their creation in the image of God, they have the moral law written on their hearts. If God's wrath were the last word, strict justice would be satisfied, but no one would be saved. But before the righteousness that is given to man through faith can be explained, more emphasis must be put on human sin. The Jews had many special privileges. They knew more about God than the Gentiles did. Unfortunately, this made them proud, conceited, and pharisaical. The contrast between their profession and their conduct caused the Gentiles to blaspheme. Those privileges increased, not decreased, their responsibility. Circumcision and the ritual are privileges, but to profit from them one must keep the law. The true child of God is not one who makes an outward profession by receiving the sacraments. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, one in whom the outward sacramental sign truly represents an inward spiritual reality. To have the sacraments and the oracles of God is a great privilege, even if some misuse it. Man's lack of faith does not nullify God's promises. God will be true, even though every man is a liar. Some Jews try to argue that their unfaithfulness contrasts so sharply with God's faithfulness that God's goodness is put to a much clearer light. But to emphasize God's goodness is to glorify God. Therefore, God ought not to punish them for their unfaithfulness. Nonsense! By that argument, God could not even punish the Gentiles. It would always be proper to do evil that good might come. But it is never right to do wrong. There is never an excuse for disobeying God's commands. Those who adopt this wicked principle are most justly condemned. Condemnation of All Men Chapter 3, verses 9-20 through 20. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and incorruption, God will give eternal life. But there are no such persons. All are under sin. There is none righteous, no, 
not one. There is none that seeketh after God. Whatever religion may be, Christianity is not man's search for God, nor is the Bible a record of such a search. Christianity is God's search for rebellious man, and the Bible is his message of redemption. Men need redemption, for their throat is an open sepulchre. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. The law was given that every mouth should be stopped, and that the whole world should be guilty before God. For by the works of the law, no one shall ever be justified in God's sight. Surely there is a deep need of some good news. Roman numeral 3. Brief Statement of Justification by Faith. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 31. If Romans is the most important book of the Bible, this section is the most important section in Romans. With full realization of the beauty of the Psalms, the majesty of Isaiah, and the popularity of John 3.16, one has good reason to judge that Romans chapter 3 verses 25 and 26 contains more of the gospel than any other sentence in the Bible. Let us study this section with great care. The question is, if all are guilty and deserving of God's wrath, how can anyone be saved? The answer is, God demands righteousness, but He has Himself furnished the righteousness He demands. It is a righteousness that is not based on our obedience to the law. To be sure, the law and the prophets have taught this righteousness and have made it clear ever since the fall of Adam. It is a righteousness of God, not of man. But man receives it by faith in Jesus Christ. The faith referred to is not some vague general religious faith. Currently, there are voices in the public press exhorting the people to have faith. Sometimes the object of this faith is said to be man, sometimes God, and sometimes the object of faith is left undefined. In contrast, the faith by which Paul speaks is definitely faith in Jesus Christ. This faith is not itself the righteousness that God gives, nor is it the basis of the righteousness. Rather, it is the means of obtaining it. This plan of redemption is suitable to all, for all men are in the same state. They are all guilty. They have all sinned. Now comes the main statement on justification. But first, it is extremely important to know what the term justification means. This is now discovered by observing how it is used by Paul and by other New Testament writers. In Romans 2.13 it is said, The doers of the law shall be justified. Since doers of the law would not be sinners, yet they would be justified, it follows that justification does not mean pardon. Doers of the law cannot be pardoned. The remark applies also to Romans 3.4, 
for God is never pardoned, and to Romans 3.20. Since justification is connected with righteousness, could justify mean to make righteous? Once again, Romans 3.4 shows that it cannot, for no one makes God righteous. When too in Luke 7.29, the publicans justified God, they did not make God righteous. Compare Luke 7.35 and 10.29. Key to the meaning is seen in the way justification is contrasted with condemnation. Quote, By thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Matthew 12.37 Compare that with Romans 5.16 8.33 and 34. To condemn a man is not to make him unrighteous. When a judge condemns a prisoner, he does not make him a criminal. The condemnation is not a moral change in the person at all. To condemn is to declare a man's guilt. The accused has already committed the crime. He is already an evil character. The judge merely declares publicly that he is guilty. Since justification is the opposite of condemnation, it is God's judicial sentence that the accused is not guilty. Justification therefore means acquittal. The accused, however, is guilty. He is a sinner. How then is justification or acquittal possible? Obviously, it cannot be merited. Sinners do not merit God's favor. Justification, therefore, is a free gift, entirely gratuitous, a matter of grace. Still, this does not explain how a just God can justly declare a guilty sinner to be innocent. This seemingly impossible result was accomplished through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God sent Christ to die as a propitiatory sacrifice, to propitiate means to appease an injured party, to turn aside his wrath, to make him favorable to the offender. This is what Christ's blood accomplished. If it seemed unrighteous for God to acquit the guilty, Christ's death satisfied the requirements of righteousness so that God could justify the sinner and at the same time remain just himself. Christ's death, therefore, was a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and as a consequence to reconcile us to God. Of course, not all sinners are acquitted. The benefit is restricted to those who have faith in Christ. Faith is the means by which the benefits of Christ's death are applied. The basis, as distinguished from the means of justification, is Christ himself, or more particularly, Christ's personal righteousness. Thus, justification excludes all human boasting in the deeds of the law. Christ has satisfied God's requirements for us.
sin Make us calm and sure Then in thy strength we evermore endure Then in our strength The canard that the Protestant and Reformed doctrine of justification is a legal fiction is refuted by the apostolic argument in Paul's epistle to the Romans. That any member of the public can have access to the scriptures and examine them to see whether the things being preached and taught by popes, priests, or reformers are true is part of the Reformation's dangerous idea, but it isn't an end unto itself. The good news of the gospel according to the scriptures is that God saves sinners not for any merit earned or foreseen of the sinner. The good news is that God will justify or acquit the sinner out of his sheer grace because of the person and work of Jesus Christ on the believer's behalf. Why? Because Christ's death satisfied divine justice, and as Clark said, as a consequence, reconciled believers to God. Thank you for joining us at Urban Puritano. We look forward to catching up with you on your next stop along your journey to the city prepared by God for all true believers. 